0: Ronnie Green, you are a busy man. You're an investigative journalist. You're an author, and on particular importance, one I wanted to really talk with you today for this edition of ATL Vault here on Atlanta News First and AtlantaNewsFirst.com is really your book. They came out last year, Art of Atlanta: Five Black Masters and the Supreme Court Victory for Integration. We've done a lot of stories on, for Black History Month on, on the iconic places in Atlanta that were really in the birthplace of the National Civil Rights Movement, predominantly along Auburn Avenue, mm-hmm. where Ebenezer is and the Allen Fellows Building and Prince Hall Masonic Temple, where Reverend King Sr., John Wesley Dobbs, and many of those early towering figures really began the National Civil Rights Movement. What you're talking about in this fascinating book, and I'm about halfway through the audio version right now, is a 1964 U.S. Supreme Court case. Tell us about the case and tell us how, how you came across a topic and a part of Atlanta history that some few people don't know so little about.
1: Sure. Why don't I start by talking about how I sort of got on to this as a book idea, and then I'm happy to talk about really the really significant struggle and push for civil rights in Atlanta in this time in the 60s. How I got onto it, you know, there's a million ways, as you know, to find stories They can you can be inspired in any way. In this case, I was inspired by a movie that I saw um, at the theater called Loving. And that movie focused on civil rights, a uh, Supreme Court ruling over annualization. You know, interracial marriage in a case in Virginia, and I thought the movie was compelling both from the legal issues it explored, but also for the human people behind the story, and I was so impressed with that movie as I was leaving the theater, I said to myself, gosh, I wish I wrote that book, but the book was already been done, of course, and it was already on the big screen, so that got me looking into, have there been maybe other really significant momentous U.S. Supreme Court rulings on civil rights that maybe have been lost to history? So I found my way to heart of Atlanta. That's how I found it. And as far as the struggle, um, I really one of the many things I found so interesting about this story is that, as you know, Atlanta, as you mentioned, with Reverend King and so many other civil rights leaders based there, really has many ways been at the forefront of pushing for equality, equal justice, and civil rights. Um, one of the magazine in the early 70s referred to Atlanta as the Black Mecca of the South. But what I found fascinating is that in the early 60s in Atlanta, the struggle over equality was really fully engaged. The struggle was not won in the early 60s or even the mid-60s, and that that really is what takes us to this specific story, and that is um, shortly before his assassination, President Kennedy announced he was going to usher in a brand new civil rights law that would be the most sweeping civil rights law in the nation's history, and after his passing, that indeed happened. One really important component of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, signed by Lyndon Johnson, was that in the old days before this, hotels, restaurants, other places of public accommodation, they could decide their customers based on race, basically on their will. If black customers tried to go to a hotel or to a restaurant that only served white customers and they pressed it, the customers would be arrested, not the owner. This law flipped it that that um, issue on its head and said, no, 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 from now on, everyone has equal access to places of public accommodation, including hotels and restaurants. And if the owner rejects you based on race, they're in trouble. And what was really interesting is the first two legal challenges over the Civil Rights Act from 1964 and its section on public accommodations were both filed in Atlanta. The first one, the very night Lyndon Johnson signed the law, the second one happened the next day. I found that really fascinating that a city with the nickname the City Too Busy to Hate was the centerpiece of the first two challenges over this law just seeking equality. So in
0: your book you talk about the Heart of Atlanta Motel, which you, you write about the Pick Rick Restaurant, former uh, Governor uh, Lester Maddox, and, and- you also talk about the, the five black pastors who really pushed this issue forward. One of the things I just found so fascinating is just your, your in-depth portrayals on all of these different figures on both sides of the issue is very easy and very common and perhaps justified to take individuals who supported desegregation or or supported segregation itself, and cast them, you know, in in very unfavorable lights. But I mean, you were very fair in in how you described the motivation and the background of all of these figures. How are you able to do that much research and make all of these characters, real life historical figures, really into three-dimensional, fully complex human beings.
1: Yeah, thank you for that comment. I really did strive to do that. I thought, you know, there were a couple of really important things for me to do here. One, of course, is to accurately and fully capture the history, accurately and fully, as, as fully as possible, capture what happened when those young ministers tried to go to the Pickwick and got repelled with axe handles and pistols, and to capture what happened when they tried to get badges at the Heartland Motel and were turned away. But I also felt it was important to try to fully understand all the key players on all sides of this issue, understand their background, their motivations, and sort of what led them to where they were. So that included, you know, um, Maddox, had written his own book, there have been books written about Maddox, I've read all of those. I watched video, um, archived digital video of the key players, see how they act acted. I looked up what they said in court, what some of their statements were, to really understand their background rounds, their backdrops, and their motivations, and the same applies for the ministry students who all all then went on to become ministers in their various hometowns, Understand saying, what were their motivations? So I think that makes a story, a book like this, a fuller story. You don't shy away for a second from clearly what were some racist acts, but you also try to put the figures, the the city, the times in their historical perspective, in their full perspective. I think it makes for a fuller book. So thank you for making a note of that.
0: No, it was my pleasure, and, and I am just thoroughly enjoying the audio book. Tell us about the actual Supreme Court case. Alan came about, and, and am I correct in, in really saying this was the first legal challenge to the 1964 Civil Rights Bill?
1: Yeah, the Civil Rights Bill had 11 components. It was, I think many people will tell you, the most significant Civil Rights Act ever passed at that point in the United States. Um, I focused on Title II, which was public accommodations. Public accommodations just means hotels, restaurants, movie houses that may be privately owned, but basically are open to the public. We're not talking about a private swimming pool or something. And what Congress did was a little interesting. I won't get too far afield on this. But Congress used the Commerce Clause as a way to pass this law. What they said was, if you were an ostensibly private business, but you're open to the public, you are subject to the Commerce Clause and you are subject to Civil Rights Act from 1964. What that meant was if you were a hotel or restaurant, say in Atlanta, as these were, and you took customers from out of state or you got goods and services from out of state, you fell under the act. So that question was later tested by the Supreme Court. Supreme Court ratified it as being a fully sound case. And what happened here was Atlanta, you had Lester Maddox, who owned, who built his own restaurant, the Pickrick, and operated it for 17 years, I think, by the time the Civil Rights Act was passed. And you had Morton Rolleston, the proprietor and main operator of the Heart of Land Hotel. Both of them were very firm in their, in their opinions. They might have come from, and they did come from deeply different backgrounds, completely different backgrounds, but they shared common views about segregation, integration. And they shared common views about the government telling them what to do. Both of them said, the federal government doesn't get to tell me who I serve at my restaurant. Federal government doesn't get to tell me who I allow in my motel. Both of them, in both their places of business, while each employed black employees, neither of them allowed black customers. Maddox would not allow black customers, nor would Maddox allow white customers if they found out they were integrations. Maddox would not allow those in his restaurant, which was very busy, except for black customers. Morton Rolston only allowed white customers into his fancy heart of Atlanta Motel. He would not allow others. So when Congress passed, and then President Lyndon Johnson in July of 1964 signed this Civil Rights Act into law, they both proprietors were ready. In fact, Morton Rolston, unbeknownst to the federal government, was busy working on a lawsuit that he filed the same day that the law was passed. Um, he filed it at night, he drove to the clerk's office. Knocked on the clerk's door. There's a rule at the time, probably still in place, that says federal clerks must be available 24 hours of business. So Morgan Rolston docketed his lawsuit against the federal government that night, saying, you cannot tell me what to do. He would later argue that the Civil Rights Act of 1964 violated his 13th Amendment right, essentially saying, you are telling me I can't operate way I want to operate. That was an argument that, of course, he lost significantly. And then the very next night, after he filed the suit, three of the five main ministry students tried to go to the Pickwick. They said to themselves, look, we have the law behind us. The president says we can do this. We're going to go pick a restaurant and get dinner. Maddox was waiting for them with a pistol, which he put in the face of one of the other ministers. He had axe handles. His customers had axe handles. They drove them off the Pickrick, And in fact, before they left, Maddox bashed their car with his axe handle. One thing I'll mention we can talk about later is one thing that struck me was really the bravery of these young ministry students. This was at a period of the U.S. where civil rights killings were not unique were not unusual. They were very graphic and very horrible. They were happening all over the South. These ministry students were threatened with a gun and an axe handle. that first night. They kept going back and back and back, persistently going back, employing Martin Luther King's vision of nonviolent social justice. So they would keep going back. They wouldn't fight, but they would go back and with their words and with the law would seek a seat at the table, which I thought was fairly compelling.
0: It is, and hence you said, these kind of violent incidents were very common at this particular outlook in, in American history. They found they, um, the case goes all the way to the Supreme Court. Was to sign in later that year. Was not
1: in October of sixty four. They had arguments in October, and the, de- and the Supreme Court decided it in December of 1964. So that shows you how significantly the U.S. Supreme Court viewed this case. Um, it's it, virtually unheard of for, for
0: cases like this to make some peace so fast trial. No, there's, no question the about judicial system.
1: there's no question about that, Tim. In fact, the Supreme Court was so motivated to address these issues that they took up oral arguments on a week that was normally a ceremonial week. But they didn't do any work. And they moved rapidly and voted ultimately 9-0 to say the Civil Rights Act of 1964 fully passes legal muster and that what Congress had done and what the president had signed is legal and stands to this day.
0: And that wasn't the end of the story.
1: No, no, it's a fascinating story on on so many fronts and and really shows uh, the struggle. It wasn't the end of the story for... um, less dramatics and particular. So I'll take these one by one. Morton Rolston, who brought his lawsuit against the federal government and its president in the Justice Department, he would not allow black customers into his motel, but he said, and he said in court, he said, if you ultimately rule against me, I will open my doors. Ultimately, after the ruling came, he opened his doors. In fact, I interviewed Mr. Rolston's son, who worked as a part-time clerk at the motel back then, and he said, After the Civil Rights Act 64 was affirmed by the U.S. Supreme Court, busloads of customers, many black customers, came, and he viewed it as a victory for civil rights. Years later, the heart of Atlanta closed. So once the law of the land was affirmed by the Supreme Court, Morgan Rowleson accepted the rule of law. Maddox didn't accept it. Um, Even as Maddox lost every court hearing he fought over the young minister's lawsuit against him, he lost every case, he refused to budge. At one point after the cases went to court, Maddox actually closed the Pickwick for a little while, then reopened it under a new name, Lester Maddox Cafeteria. And he opened it under a new name with new rules that basically said, I'm a local restaurant online. I don't serve out-of-state customers. I don't serve integrations. Maddox was trying to circumvent the rule of law by saying, I don't fall under the Commerce Clause. Of course, the ministers kept going back. He tried to violently repel them again. He lost that argument as well, as he lost every argument. He lost it completely, and ultimately, the federal court in Georgia imposed a sizable fine on him. So ultimately, Maddox did close down the picture. But his story was not done. One of his acquaintances back then, because this fight had gotten so much attention in local media, one of his acquaintances back then said, Lester, this thing is going to make you governor." And I'll mention about that is Lester Maddox had become, as his restaurant was very popular, In Atlanta, he had taken out full-page ads in the Atlanta Saturday Papers, and his ads had the menu items in the bottom, but the whole bulk of the ads were his views on the laws of the day and his railing against integrators. Um, He twice ran for mayor of Atlanta. He lost, and he blamed Martin Luther King and his supporters for his losses, because the black vote was entirely against him. But when he was engaged in the Pickwick battle, his friend said to him, Leicester, you you could run for governor. This is going to help you. Ultimately, he did. In the race in which he didn't get the most votes, he ended up taking seat as the governor of Georgia, and I think he did win support from pockets of Georgia at that point that were maybe not as, as uh, progressive as Atlanta's hub was. And so, for the ministers, they ultimately won this case in that their point: restaurants and motels are open to all races. That that is, in fact, the truth but they wanted to eat at his restaurant they never got a chance to. And then some of them said, well, our pushing on Maddox helped raise his profile and helped lead him to the governor's mansion.
0: So the Wild Lister took yes, and he, and he became governor. And I believe he actually, after his gubernatorial term was over, ran successfully for lieutenant governor, uh, if I recall. And in kind of one of the most ironic Points In Georgia history, Jimmy Carter was serving as governor, while, while Lester Maddox was serving as lieutenant governor as well.
1: That, that's exactly right. In fact, when Maddox won the governorship, um, Jimmy Carter didn't even make it to the runoff. Right. But then that changed a few years later. You're right. And they ran on separate tickets, sort of, but uh, Carter and Maddox, who apparently were not the closest of political friends, um, served together as the governor and of governor. That's true.
0: The Pickerick Restaurant and the Harlem Atlanta Motel, to the best of my knowledge, are not standing anymore.
1: That is correct. The Harnam Atlanta Motel was, a few years after this case, was replaced by another motel, and it's gone. And then, ultimately, Maddox closed the Pickwick, which was then called Vlex from Maddox Cafeteria, but will always be remembered as the Pickerick. Some prior employees Opened it as a restaurant that did allow all customers, then later on Georgia Tech brought the property. And now it's it's no longer a restaurant. It's a, it's now it's now uh, another building unrelated to a restaurant on the grounds of Georgia Tech.
0: And the forward or the preface to the book, if I as I recall, you recount one of the individuals who was involved in this, I want to say it was one of the members of the black clergy who when you told them that you were going to do this book, this individual, and, and correct me if I'm not telling the, the preface correctly, but that you were met with such an emotional response, and the consensus was, I think we've been waiting for decades for this story to be told. What was the reaction as you began researching this among all the people who lived through it? What was their reaction?
1: Yeah, that's really that's really a good point, Tim, And definitely. Um, So two things on that front. One is when I decided to really dig deep, deep into the story and to tell this really momentous story, you know, I'm a journalist based in Washington. My wife is as well. We have a lot of journalists and friends. Get together with folks, let them know generally what the book was about. I was really taken aback of how few people really knew this story. Um, and so that was another motivation for me to want to bring this to light. So when I found this story and found that, two of the main ministers were still were still alive, um, I reached out to them and one of them is Reverend Albert Sampson, back then based in Atlanta. He's now a very activist preacher in Chicago. When I reached Reverend Sampson one day back in 2019 when I first started digging into this, he said to me, he brought tears to my eyes. I've been waiting for this call all my life. He and the others involved in this case really felt that this history had been lost to history, that this struggle so significant at the time had been lost to history. So there... Motivation to want this story to come to light further inspired me to try to do justice by this story, and my hope was, in bringing this story to light, I would this book would put a spotlight on this significant Supreme Court civil rights ruling, but also on really the unsung heroes behind the story. I really felt it would, and hoped it would achieve both of those both those goals.
0: And I ha- I think, and I certainly hope, and it has. We are wrapping up our conversation. With Ronnie Green, he is a nationally known investigative reporter based in Washington. He is the author of the 2022 book, Art of Atlanta, Five Black Pastors in the Supreme Court Victory for Integration. If there was one thing that you would want everyone, everyone who's listening to this, who's watching this on our website and, and following Our extensive Atlanta News First coverage, not only of Black History Month, but also of Atlanta in general. One takeaway from this monumental court case that has all been, been forgotten by many, many people. What would it be?
1: Yeah, I have an interesting answer that may surprise you, and that is there, I think there were hundreds or thousands of sort of unsung heroes of the civil rights movement. Some of those heroes sort of lost their lives in the struggle, as we know. And one thing that I took away from this, from the research of this book is, if you read this book, I think you'll see, let's introduce you to five of the unsung heroes of the civil rights movement, maybe, who did risk their lives, did put their bodies on the line in a quest for equality and fairness for all, and to this day really made unsung heroes. I think if someone dives into the story, I think they'll see the significance of the legal issues, but they'll also see sort of the significance of some of the personalities behind the story as well.
0: Ronnie Green, where can we learn more about your work? Website, Twitter, Instagram. I don't know if you're a TikTok guy or not, but if you have a TikTok handle, why do go in and share it with us?
1: My my best advice is, is like, as I tell my students when I teach and my colleagues, sort of the, the star is always the story. So my feeling is, you know, the star here is the story is the book. So what I would pass along is if anyone's interested, check out Heart of Atlanta. I think it's a story worth following up on. It's, of course, available on Amazon. It's available by publisher, Chicago Review Press. It's at your local library. Check out the story and maybe peel back the layers on on an often forgotten piece of our uh, nation's civil rights history and really of Atlanta's momentous civil rights history as well.
0: Rodney Green, thanks for joining us on this edition
1: of ATL of All. Thanks to everyone for listening. We'll see you soon. Thanks, Deb.